Before we go into the talk, I'd just like to invite Richard down and we'll do a quick little Q&A uh, just to get to know him a little bit more, if that's all right. <laughs> so the first question we've got for Richard is, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Yeah, I'm not Vaughan Roberts. <laughs> Uh, but I serve uh, the national body that your group is affiliated to, so called the Australian Fellowship of Evangelical Students. Uh, and our desire is to see students come to know Jesus as their Lord and Saviour, established in the faith and raised up to serve him all over this world. And I hope I can play my part in serving groups like yours, in raising up staff together with students like you. Boy, you have so many students involved in the public meeting, don't you? That's the first time I've seen, I think, something like the order of six or seven students at the front. One announcement each. That is very equitable, isn't it? <laughs> very, yeah, yeah. It's very good. It's Sorry. most impressed. Yeah. Student partnership. <laughs> and then just a follow-up question. What are you doing in Perth at the moment and what are you hoping to achieve with your visit over here? The glory of God. Next question. Uh, next question. Is there anything we can... <laughs> now, I'm here to serve uh, as many of groups like you. So I'm actually speaking here. I was at uh, ECU Mount Louis last night. I'm in Curtin and I'm also somewhere else. Where am I? Murdoch. Murdoch, thank you. I'm at Murdoch. Uh, and I'll be meeting with uh, the staff team leaders on Friday. So we're just catching up with all of them. And truly, our desire is to see what we can do to serve you as students and to see as many students one for Christ and living for his glory. Awesome. And then just another thing, is there anything we can pray for you or for AFES nationally as well? Any prayer points for upcoming prayer meeting? Yeah, uh, well you can pray for the national training event. Uh, it will be a terrific time I think uh, and it is one of those once in a generation kind of things especially from out west here. Uh, and we would love it if students are so saturated in the gospel as they read the scriptures that they'll be well trained to handle it and communicate it uh, with people everywhere. I can tell you just a million stories of the impact that it's had because we want you so able, confident in handling the scriptures because it's the scriptures that are actually going to change people's lives. It's the scriptures that actually see people saved and transformed. So please pray that our intent is actually met that way, uh, not just at the conference, but in all our ministries, uh, so that Jesus truly is exalted. That'll be a wonderful thing to pray for. We'll certainly do that. Um, and then last question, bit of a trick question, but what's your favourite and least favourite thing about Perth? Oh, <laughs> oh what am I? Well, hey, you've got a really good cafeteria, don't you? I mean, uh, that, that all-you-can-eat Chinese food for $12 is not bad. I, I noticed that everybody gets a small one and they just pack it on. And you know, I saw someone with kind of this high food. That's pretty good. That's not bad. That, 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 uh, that, uh, 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 what I like, it's flat, so that means if you go jogging, you don't get exhausted. So that's really nice about Perth. Uh, and, and my least favourite, oh, it's just so far from everywhere, isn't it? It's just, like, it's four hours flight minimum from anywhere. Like, that's just a long way to get to, but it's nice to be here. Yeah, yeah I think a lot of us will agree with that as well. But thanks, Richard. We'll go into the talk now. Thank you. Uh, well, it is a pleasure to be with you. I think last time I was here was some years ago, um, but it just feels bigger for some reason. I don't know why, but uh, there you go. It's good to be here. Well, we've had the Word of God read to us and given that it is God who's spoken let's pray to him now before we look at his word 
We thank you, dear Father, for the privilege it is to gather here at this lunchtime to hear your voice both read and taught. And our Father, we pray that you might help me to teach it faithfully and well, and for us to listen well, and for us to respond in a manner that is truly appropriate. And we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. When something is precious, it's worth guarding. It's worth protecting. When something's really precious, it's even worth living for, suffering for, and even dying for. Do you remember Gollum? Do you remember what he thought was precious? Do you remember how he sought to live his life around what he found precious? Or what issues would you be willing to suffer for? And if you reflect on your life just in this last week, what would others think you consider to be precious? Well, in his last known letter, the Apostle Paul wrote to his protege, his beloved son, Timothy. And in chapter 1 of this last letter, in verse 8, we read, So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Later on in that chapter, in verse 14, he writes, Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. I take it the good deposit also refers to this gospel that he is exhorting Timothy to suffer for. It is that precious that it's worth living for and dying for. Why? Because of what the gospel is. That's why. But what is the gospel? Now we know it's about Jesus. I don't know whether you heard the story of someone who was describing to a little classroom of uh, children in a church. And he said, what's uh, grey and it's got this black nose and hangs out in uh, eucalyptus trees and kind of eats eucalyptus leaves? And one child put up their hand and said, sounds like a koala, but I know the answer's Jesus. <laughs> because they were in a church, right? Because everything's got to do with Jesus, and that's absolutely right. And we know the word gospel in, in Christian terms means Jesus. And we're absolutely on the money, aren't we? In fact, Paul says so in chapter 2, verse 8 as well, doesn't he? He says, remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel for which I am suffering. Do you know one of the most fascinating words in that verse is, to me at least? It's the word, remember. Isn't that fascinating? Of all, all the things you think he would tell Timothy, right? Timothy spent a lot of time with the Apostle Paul. You kind of think that this is something you wouldn't forget, you know? Jesus Christ. He says, remember Jesus Christ. 
raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel for which I am suffering. Why tell him to remember Jesus Christ? How could he forget? What is it about Jesus Christ that he wants him to remember? Well, two points there, that he's raised from the dead, and secondly, that he's descended from David. But what's the big deal about these two points regarding the gospel that he is to remember? Well, firstly, remember that Jesus has risen from the dead. That is, by his resurrection, he has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Furthermore, what makes his resurrection significant is not just that he conquered death, but the role he exercises as he rises to life. Because as he rises to life, having died the death that we deserve, now he rules and reigns as our King, our Lord. And now he rules over every mountain and every molecule, over every continent and every chemical, every habitat and every human. He commands all people to turn back to him, for he has risen from the dead to rule as Lord and King. And it may be that you've wanted this meeting for the first time. It may be that you're here unsure of what it means to be a Christian or what Christians believe about Jesus. But if there's one thing you can take away is that this Jesus really is reigning and ruling from heaven. That if, if somehow the, the roof would open and you could stare straight into heaven itself, there would be Jesus ruling this world at the right hand of his Father. And that is the kind of news that will transform us. Secondly, he's descended from the line of David. I mean, so what? I mean, of all things you could say about Jesus that is momentous, that is miraculous, that is out of this world, why give this prominence that he is from the line of David? Because God made precious promises to this man called David a thousand years earlier that the king would come from his line. David himself was, of course, king, but he is talking about the king of all kings. And not only would he become the king who would rule forever the kingdom, this is the promise of God to King David a thousand years before, but that this king would have a special relationship with him as a father to a son. It's from 2 Samuel chapter 7 for those of us who are taking notes. And you can look at it at your leisure at some time in great detail. But note that this particular relationship of father to son is what God promised King David regarding the one who would succeed him as king. So much so that everybody who sat on the throne of King David after David would be given this title, Son of God. So that title, Son of God, doesn't exclusively belong to Jesus. It belongs to every king who sat on the throne of King David. So Solomon was a son of God. Rehoboam, who was Solomon's son, who succeeded him, was also a son of God. 
Josiah was a son of God. Jehoiakim, he's the Korean king. He's a son of God. And there's Jehoiachin as well. Great name, isn't it? There's no Jehoiah Smith, is there? There's no Jehoiah Smart. There's no Jehoiah Thorburn. There's a Jehoiachin. He's a son of God. He was a pretty pathetic king, though, so don't go with that. He was atrocious. But who better to be the son of God than God the Son? And they're two different references, yeah? God the Son is the second person of the Trinity. And you heard a lot about him, I take it, at your mid-year conference if you were there. But he has this title now. The Son of God, the one in the line of King David who would rule his kingdom forever. And that's why Paul expects those in gospel ministry to share in suffering for this news because this news is that Jesus is the one who has fulfilled the promises that God made to King David. This is the one who is now the Son of God. This is now the one who is ruling as Lord and King, as the resurrected one. This message is precious. This message is worth guarding. This message is worth suffering for. For this message is God's message. So how does Paul exhort Timothy to guard this gospel? Well, have a look at chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 in your Bibles. It says, You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Right? Timothy, entrust the gospel to reliable people in the next generation. That's how you guard the gospel. You know, that's one reason why I keep hanging around you guys, right? Because you're the next generation. And the people you teach are the generation after you. And one way to preserve, guard this gospel is to entrust it to you so that you can entrust it to others and, and to others. That's what the NTE is all about as well. That's why we want you to keep teaching this gospel to the Sunday schools that you teach, to the youth groups that you teach, so that they in turn can pass it on and pass it on. Did you notice how many generations are there in that verse? In verse 2, why don't you talk to the neighbour next to you? This may be the first time, but others of you know it immediately, don't you? So if you know it immediately, just get the other person guessing. But, but if you don't know, just count, count the number of generations that are there in verse 2. Why don't you talk to the person next to you and oh, have a little look and then answer it with the person next to you. Go for it. Count it. If you don't know that, if you know, just, you know, keep quiet, let us work it out. How many generations are there? Okay. Okay, we'll gather together. Okay, for those of us who are trying, if, if this is the first time you're working this out, I'd love to hear from you in particular. Any, anybody willing to share an answer here? How many generations are there? <laughs> I can tell her, her body language shows it. 
But anybody willing to get it? doesn't matter. We'll just, we're amongst friends. We're safe. If you get it wrong, that's okay. If you get it right, well, all glory to you. And you'll just get all this closer seat to God in heaven or something out of it. doesn't matter. We're amongst safe, safe friends. Any guesses? Just guesses if you're not sure. Just guess. Four. Four? Yeah? Great. Go. Paul says it to Timothy when he trusts it to others, he then yeah, well done. That's why you're the student president. Isn't it? <laughs> Unbelievable. And, and look how close he is to the front. It's incredible. It, it's, it is right. It's four generations. Paul, Timothy, the faithful people who in turn teach others. So if, if you're recognising for the first time, that's quite incredible, isn't it? Four generations in that one verse alone. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. Now, as an aside by way of implication, we're always one a generation away from possible failure. And that's why Paul is so concerned to pass it on faithfully from his prison cell to Timothy to reliable people who will teach others. As one person taught me, you know, what is taught in the first generation can be assumed in the second generation before it's forgotten about or confused in the third generation and then eventually denied in the fourth generation. And I've been around long enough to see that happen in, a, in one city, let alone a student movement. And if that happens, which generation is at fault? It's the second generation, the one who assumed it rather than the ones who are confused later, or even the deniers. That's why we never want to take that for granted. You see, that's why I, had, I didn't care less at one level that we went through what the gospel is again in, in a very short and very superficial way. I know you've been hearing wonderful teaching over the years. You know, we have a staff conference uh, where Ben and Matt and... Tim and Rosemary come to as well, etc. But you know what? I, every year, one way or another, we'll hear what the gospel is. In fact, we asked Tim to actually share what the gospel is with our staff team this year. Again. That's really important. I don't care how many PhDs we have, and we have a number of PhD people amongst our staff. I don't care if they're on faculty and theological colleges. But what we're going to do is keep on hearing what the gospel is. And I, I implore you, if you are a Christian who is teaching others, especially children and youth, that you keep sharing what this gospel is. If you get tired of that, there is something wrong, dear brothers and sisters. For this is the most fabulous news in all the world. And that's what changes lives. And that's why we're willing to suffer for it, aren't we? Because what happens to those who pass the gospel on? Look at verses 3 to 6. John, join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. The hard-working farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I am saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all this. I love that last verse. Keep reflecting, won't you, so that the Lord will give us insight. But what insight can we have here? 
Well, Paul is expecting Timothy and the reliable people he entrusts the gospel to to suffer for the gospel. As a soldier, firstly, who is single-minded and undistracted from his duties, soldiers in active duty don't expect to be comfortable. They expect to suffer. Right? Suffering is what we must expect in our ministries if we're going to be faithful in teaching it to the next generation and the next generation. Suffering is normal. And furthermore, soldiers are single-minded. They're focused. They're undistracted. They don't get entangled not, in civilian affairs. Do you know what the original actually says there? It says the pragmatics of life. Isn't that fascinating? Civilian affairs are the pragmatics of life. It's quite fascinating. In Canberra, uh, there is the Australian Defence Force Academy, and we have a group just like you uh, meeting there. Uh, I was introduced as a speaker, and they said, this is Richard, he is our civilian for tonight. Kind of like, oh, what a great title. You know, I'm the civilian. Uh, it, it, in the original, it's the pragmatics of life, like I'm the pragmatist coming in for those of you who are single-minded in their duties. But what is pragmatic that can distract us from gospel ministries? They're not evil things, but they can distract us. Well, here's the last question for you. Why don't you talk with the person next to you? What, what are pragmatic things that could distract us from the ministry of proclaiming Jesus? Can I talk to each other? I'll give you 30 seconds. Okay, I'd love to hear, hear back from you now. Hopefully this is a less scary question, right? Um, so, any thoughts? What are pragmatics? Of life that could distract us from gospel ministry. Yeah? Your job. Your job, yeah. How so? Uh, you can get too caught up in chasing after money or you know, worrying about yeah. stressing yeah. about yeah. business yeah. or whatever it is. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And it doesn't have to be a full time job to do that. A part time job can do that and get, get distracted. Yeah, any other things? They're not evil, are they? In fact, that's good. Yes? Uh, any type of relationship? Any type of relationship, yeah. Yeah, any type of relationship. That's right. And it could be an online relationship. It could be a relationship, whatever it is. Yeah, you can get start distracting. Yes, um, uh, those of us who have been there with the first flutter of the heart, with the first person you might have actually been vaguely attracted to <laughs> back in third class, it was, it was like that, wasn't it? Oh, you could think about and, and you know, it's he or she or whatever it is. You know, the, you're trying to get... Um, room for in their thinking and in your thinking. It's quite distracting, isn't it? And they're, but they're not evil. Right? But they are distracting in that sense. It could be sport, it could be social media, it could be gaming. They're not evil, but if they get in the way of gospel priorities, then there is where we get entangled in civilian affairs. And Timothy and the faithful people he recruits are to be single-minded, focused, undistracted about the gospel. And furthermore, they're to be like an athlete who will never be unfaithful in the race. Uh, every sport has its rules. If you compete in the 200-metre sprint, you can't just randomly run into someone else's lane. You can't use drugs. You must compete according to the rules. You must be faithful in your ministry. I heard the story once of a, a marathon that was conducted in uh, one country in Africa and there was a set of twins who entered the marathon. So happened that one of them ran to the toilet 
uh, halfway through the race and his twin brother came out <laughs> and won the race. Can you believe it? They discovered it later, but goodness me, that's not exactly competing according to the rules, is it? <laughs> now, God's leaders are to be faithful to God's gospel. No matter how gifted they are, if they're not faithful, then they shouldn't be in gospel ministry. And Paul also likens them to a farmer who will work hard. Anybody who's done any farming, anybody done any farming here? Put up your hand if you have. Yeah, there you go. Go and shake her hand. I bet you it's, it's tougher than mine. Right? <laughs> I have no doubt it's tougher than mine. I've got very soft office kind of hands. Mushier. You know, oil of the land could be used on it, you know, kind of thing. Uh, it's, but hard-working farmers, they're tough. They work hard. Anybody who has done this hard work will know that whether the soil is poor, whether the weather is bad, the farmer still keeps farming no matter how tired they are for they don't farm. If they don't farm, they, there's no food. Gospel ministry is hard work. It's tiring. It's emotionally, spiritually and physically tiring. And that can be part and parcel of the suffering that we work through. The reliable people that God desires will suffer as a single-minded soldier, a faithful athlete, a hard-working farmer, appropriately to proclaim and guard the gospel because it's worth living for. It's precious. And if the gospel is truly precious, it really will involve a choice sometimes of avoiding pleasure. Sometimes. David Williams is a, a missionary who is now returned to Australia, or rather he's from overseas, but he's training Australian missionaries in a place called St Andrew's Hall in Melbourne uh, with the Church Missionary Society. And one of the most helpful things he helps them understand are cultural world views. That is, if you come from a culture where right and wrong, guilt and innocence are important to you, then your inner voice is an inner lawyer. I know we've got at least one lawyer here, but the, you know, if you're a lawyer, it's all about right and wrong, isn't it? And so you've got an inner lawyer, and the inner lawyer says to you, don't do that, it's wrong. Do this, and it's right. right? So there's an inner lawyer. That's a worldview that many have said that this is what the West used to think. Uh, if you come from a shame-honour culture like I do from Malaysia, and I am of Chinese descent, just, just in case you're wondering... Uh, uh, and in the shame honour culture, you have an inner, not an inner lawyer, but an inner grandmother. The, what's her name from uh, Mulan? It's, it's, it, what's her name? Is it Mushu or someone like that? The inner grandmother. Now, shame on you uh, is, is what your inner grandmother is saying if you do something. It's a shame honour culture. But what voice? So you've got your inner lawyer, your inner grandmother... But most recently, and I'm speaking to you as millennials, right? What's your inner voice telling you in terms of decisions that you make? Why it's not right, wrong or shame, honour. Could it be avoid pain, seek pleasure? The inner therapist. 
Do this. Why? Because it's pleasurable. Don't do it. Why? Because it's going to cause pain. Jeremy Bentham is a famous philosopher and he's known to have especially been the father of a philosophy known as utilitarianism. Big, fat word, isn't it? But for those of us who do something in philosophy, you will know that that's about the greatest number enjoying the greatest good. Or pleasure, really. Here's a quote from Jeremy Bentham. He says, Nature has placed mankind under the governance of two sovereign masters, pain and pleasure. It is for them alone to point out what we ought to do as well as to determine what we shall do. Pain, pleasure. Jeremy Bentham. Paul tells his beloved son, Timothy, to share in suffering for the gospel of Jesus. That's not avoiding pain, is it? And perhaps that's another reason why we read in chapter 2, verse 8, Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel. Now, do you know that every time Jesus is mentioned in 2 Timothy, he's referred to as Christ Jesus. Except for here, in chapter 2, verse 8, it's Jesus Christ. He's reversed it. The only time... Isn't that interesting? Why is that? Is it purely stylistic? If you study anything of, of the original language, at one level, word order doesn't matter. But in this instance, it's just a little curious. Why is that? Well, could it refer to the path of Jesus? From suffering to glory. See, he puts his resurrection title of Christ last, possibly to allude to the fact that Jesus suffered in his origin. Before he was Christ Jesus, he was Jesus Christ. His cross came before his crown. Now, I won't go to the state for this, but it is curious, isn't it? I just want, at the very least, when you read through this section, it gets you to slow down if you've noticed the word change, the word water change. And the whole context has got to do with suffering before glory. And you know, our forebears, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the people who wrote those creeds, described Jesus' life with one word. Anybody know what that one word is? You want to guess what that one word is in the creeds? Anybody know their creeds? Any, any liturgically excellent people here who know their creeds? What's the word that they use of Jesus' life? Anybody know? Anybody want to guess at this point in time? Suffering. Suffering. Well done. Are you an Anglican? <laughs> <laughs> well done. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? One word to use of Jesus' life. Suffering or suffered. Is that perhaps why Paul describes this gospel as my gospel? His own life followed the pattern of suffering before glory. And he endures everything for the sake of the elect. 
Remember, resurrection life now involves suffering. It makes, means costly decisions for Jesus and keep enduring on the path from suffering to glory for others, for the elect. Paul sees his suffering from God's perspective. God's got the elect on view and so he doesn't waste his suffering. Imagine sharing Paul's perspective. Our suffering serves the gospel. Now, suffering is not the gospel. Suffering is not something that will give you more glory, but it will be used for the elect. And if you read biographies of Christian missionaries, you can't help but see the suffering that they've gone through. But if the gospel is precious to you, what will keep us going through this suffering? For the soldier, it's pleasing his or her enlisting officer, the Lord Jesus Christ. For the athlete, it's the future reward of the Lord Jesus Christ. For the farmer, it's the first share of the crops, I take it, that are heavenly. It's all, it's all future-oriented. It's all the promises of the future that makes us strive on what uh, a man named John Piper describes as future grace, what we don't deserve. But it's in the future. And this is further promised in that trustworthy saying as we close now in verses 11 to 13. It reads, here is a trustworthy saying, if we die with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. And if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Oh, there is a warning, right? If you deny Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, he will deny you. And if, if we are faithless, then he will remain faithful to his character, either in denying you or saving you from your temporary faithlessness. But be encouraged. Be encouraged. If we endure through suffering and trials for the Lord Jesus, we will live and reign with him and we will see him face to face in undiluted glory. But how do we face this suffering now? It is by looking to the future. But please come back now to verse 1. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Remember our Apostle Paul wrote this within weeks or even days of dying in prison. Our strength to endure will only come ultimately through the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The undeserved generosity displayed in the gospel. The gospel of Jesus that we are to remember. His resurrection from the dead where he died the death that we deserve. The fact that he is from the line of David the one who fulfills the promises to reign as Lord and Savior. That's all by grace. It's all a gift of God. We don't earn that in any way. But as we trust his promise in the gospel of Jesus, that's what will strengthen us. 
And we keep looking back to his grace at the cross, at his resurrection. We keep looking to his present grace as he rules with all authority here and now. And we can keep looking to his future grace. The time when he will return to take us home to live and rule with him and see him face to face. It's all grace. It's all undeserved. It's all unmerited. And as we bathe in his intentional, incalculable, amazing grace that is saturated with love, why that's what enables us to be strong through whatever suffering we go through, whatever trials we go through, for the sake of this news. Now, if you are here checking out Christianity, I hope you hear something of why it is that we Christians can be so bizarre in living for Jesus. And we'd love to talk to you more. But if you are a Christian, I hope this is not bizarre at all. Familiar, but not so familiar as to become something that you take for granted. I hope it continues to so thrill you that you can't help but live for Jesus. Talk about Jesus. And keep enduring for Jesus. And have your lives revolve around his plans, his purposes, his gospel. In an undistracted way. Wherever God takes you. So may God bless you and keep you as you keep looking to our Lord Jesus. For the joy set before him endured the cross.